0: welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by segmentify
1: so ladies and gentlemen welcome to the next uh e grow promoters show today is with us uh, miss rebecca hugo and she's a ux uh, auditor at weimart institute and today's title, actually topic that she will share with us, will be six findings from testing the world's leading checkout flows. Uh, last year, she was also with us on S-Mind conference, and she was actually assessment as the best speaker. So Rebecca, please, the stage is yours.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, hopefully that's coming up all right. Uh, so as I said, hello everyone, my name is Rebecca and I'm a UX Auditor at Baymard Institute and today we want to talk to you about the six findings from testing the world's leading checkout flows. A little bit of background about us at Baymard, we're an independent web usability research institute and we do large-scale e-commerce usability research. So over the past 11 years, it's been over 54,000 plus hours of research on all aspects of the e-commerce experience from form fields to the entire mobile experience. And today I'm here just to present a subset of these findings. So typically we devote about a year to any of our seven themes that we can see here. Uh, For example, only testing the checkout flow. And during that time, we employ a mix of methodologies designed to uncover real user behavior when exposed to different design patterns, such as think aloud, eye tracking, and quantitative um, studies as well. And what we found in testing is that in total, we ran into more than 11,000 specific and preventable usability issues. And we've distilled all of these down into over 760 plus uh, UX guidelines that show the exact design patterns that we've observed in testing to consistently cause users, uh, cause issues for users and the design patterns that consistently solve them. So we've taken these 760 plus weighted guidelines and weighted in terms of frequency and severity and um, thus making an overall impact and then manually benchmarked 60 top grossing US and European e-commerce sites across all of these 760 guidelines. And this has led to the world's most comprehensive e-commerce UX database with more than 77,800 UX performance scores and 49,000 best and worst practice examples. So this is very powerful for understanding the current state of the e-commerce industry, competitive landscape, missed and strategic opportunities, also along with providing an endless performance verified best practice examples. So all of this we've bundled into our Baymard premium research catalogue, and that's where our findings come from today. So with some of the difficulties that the world is facing at the moment, and more and more people turning to e-commerce to shop rather than visiting physical stores, a robust checkout is all the more important. And what we wanted to focus on today is six findings from testing the world's leading checkout flows, uh, from checkout length to third party payments and perceived security. So during our checkout studies, we have uncovered various reasons for abandonment and most sites that do face this challenge, that 70% of users who put something into their cart end up abandoning. That's over two thirds of users. So after going through all of the trouble of searching a catalog, finding a product, adding it to the cart, two out of three users are still abandoning their purchase. And while your own number may look a little bit higher, a little bit lower than this, it's still integral to look into what your checkout is offering or what it isn't offering and how you actually kind of measure up against what's happening in the great landscape. So naturally, there are many different reasons why a user would abandon their cart. And what we find is that a large segment of users abandoned just because they're not ready to purchase at that point. And when it comes to checkout optimization, it's not actually all that interesting because there's only so much you can do to actually control it. What we do really want to pay attention to are the reasons users abandoned during the actual checkout flow. Forced account creation, a complicated or a long checkout process, or even not trusting the site with credit card information. These are all reasons that users have, in the past three months as of this survey, which we've run again in 2020, so some of our numbers have changed since last year, they've abandoned the checkout process. And these are the seven reasons for abandonment that can be improved with checkout optimization. So while a 0% cart abandonment rate might be somewhat unattainable, we can certainly do better than the 69.57%. But how much better? So if we have focus exclusively on the checkout usability issues, which during multiple rounds of large-scale checkout usability testing, we have documented can be fixed by checkout as improvements alone, then the average large-sized e-commerce site can gain a 35.26 increase in conversion rate. Sadly, that doesn't come all that easy. So if you've hoped for a one magic solution or the killer thing in checkouts or a 10 commandments, if you will, it's not exactly what you're going to be getting here today. So our 11 years worth of checkout testing didn't reveal anything like that. What we did find, however, are 134 design attributes in a checkout flow that do need to be just right. So the average large-scale U.S. e-commerce site has 32 um, checkout usability issues to address. So that's 32 potential areas for improvement. There's actually down from 39 uh, as of 2019, so it is slowly getting better and many checkouts are slowly improving and becoming that little bit more robust. This number may seem like a daunting prospect, but don't let the actual numbers discourage you too badly. So the vast majority of the checkout changes that we propose at Baymard are related to things like page layout, um, the addition of simple form features, and they don't require advanced technical implementations or deep pockets. So as we go through some of our findings, you'll begin to see just how accessible some of these changes are. As we saw a uh, too long or a complicated checkout process accounted for about 21% of checkout abandonments so what may uh, what exactly is the best checkout length or the optimum checkout length i can tell you what the average is so it's 5.08 as of 2012. so in 2012 the average checkout length for the largest e-commerce sites was 5.08 steps and that includes the cart step. And in the mind of the user, when we talk about checkout length, they will count the cart step as part of the checkout flow. And so as users perceive it that way, we at Baymail also perceive it that way. So what's important to point out here is when we talk about or define the number of checkout steps, is that if the users ever see a new page or a new view in a checkout flow that contains uh, new fields, has new descriptions, and renewed primary button that they can click on in order to proceed to the next step, users will perceive that as a new step. So the reason I mention this is that there is a quite a popular design pattern or layout when it comes to checkout flows uh, the accordion layout where technically there might only be one page as far as html goes but it has multiple sections that collapse and expand to reveal different form fields sorry about that Um, so what is actually happening is that even though the the view um, or the page itself remains exactly the same as the multiple Views get updated and the fields expand and collapse. As far as the user concerned, each of those is a new step. So now that we have our definitions out of the way, let's take a look at where we are now. So we're currently at 4.93 as of 2019. So there's really virtually no change from back in 2012. And we can see how this breaks down here and how many steps the average e commerce site has. So the big involvement here over the past 11 years is that even though the average is still very similar, the tendency for longer checkout flows has declined. So taking the six checkout steps as an example, um, here in the middle, uh, the number from 2012 to 2019 has actually doubled. So when you're looking at these numbers, you might ask yourself exactly what's going on and don't the world's largest e-commerce sites get that it's an issue to have uh, a very long, very complicated checkout flow. And what we have found across all of our testing is that something that may at first seem slightly counterintuitive. The number of checkout steps, if we only focus on the number of checkout steps, has no consistent and direct correlation with the user experience performance and the checkout conversion rate. What's far more important is that users, or what users have to do at each of these steps and how they're asked to complete those tasks compared to how many steps there actually are. So, What we do see to have a very direct impact on the checkout UX performance, or you could say in terms of even lowering the checkout abandonment rate, is that the number of form fields that we have in a checkout flow. So this represents the natural number of tasks that a user has to complete. So when we talk about checkout length, we actually really need to talk about the number of form fields. So here we've plotted the checkout user experience performance going up with the number of form fields across the bottom. And each dot represents one of the largest uh, e-commerce sites across the world and their performance. And as you can see, there is a correlation between the number of form fields and the site's checkout UX performance. So the real question that we should ask ourselves is not how many steps you have in your checkout flow, but how many form fields you have in your checkout flow. And again, in terms of averages, it's about 13. So sites have 12.71 form fields on average with their checkout. And this is actually quite a lot, especially when you find out this and the average could almost be halved. Sites could have just seven form fields. The lowest we can theoretically go is between six and eight form fields in our checkout flow for a physically shipped product. And that exact number does depend slightly on the country that the user is from. So let's take a look at what a typical checkout experience would look like. Um, So this site here has uh, just about higher than the average, about 15. And your own site may differ somewhat to this, but it's a fairly representative example of what a checkout could often look like. And of course, the number of form fields will vary depending on what is being asked some sites in comparison have vastly higher numbers as we can see here it's 45 and this is a highly intimidating experience for users but in our testing we also see a totally different checkout experience this is just eight form fields the entire checkout flow for guest users including payment just eight fields in total so my point here is that the focus should be less about the number of steps and more about the number of form fields So it's much more impactful to get down to around seven or eight fields than it is discussing whether those fields should be over one or two or three steps. And it's all well and good talking about fewer form fields but how can you actually go about getting there? So let's talk about getting from 16 to 8. So in this process I'll show you our research findings and what focuses on the underlying user behavior when users reach some of the input types that we have in our checkout flow. And at Baymard, we believe it's more important to understand what the underlying issue and underlying user behavior is rather than the exact solution. So we'll start with the checkout flow that has 16 form fields, as we see here. It could look a little bit something like this. And naturally, your own fields may vary somewhat, but we typically see something like this in the 14 to 17 form field range. So let's start at the beginning. When users reach the name field in the checkout flow, we often see this sort of issue in testing. So this is from an eye tracking study where the red dots indicate where the user is fixated on on the screen and the size of the dot is how long they have fixated on that point. So as the user progresses through the name field, starting at the first field, as you'd expect, and starts typing the name, Jessica Newman, they'll then move on to the next name field, only to realize that actually that the first field was just for their first name so they then copy and paste the last name into the middle name but realize actually that's for the middle name field so they've done it wrong again now they have to copy and paste the middle name into the last name field and okay now they're actually done it's quite a bit of friction there for something that's actually or at least supposed to be very simple and we see this happen surprisingly often um, and also does happen on sites that don't ask for a middle name field So even with just two fields, just first and last name, we will see users type their full name. So Jessica Newman or Rebecca Hugo into the first name field that they come across. And there are various reasons why we see this behavior. Firstly, what we see very consistently in our eye tracking tests of checkout flows is that generally users afford a disproportionate amount of attention towards open text form fields. That is when there are open text form fields on a page, they focus intensely on those form fields, often as the very first thing. And the second thing that we see is that users actually perceive their name as a single entity. Their name is Jessica Newman, not first name Jessica, last name Newman. This is at least in the context of where do you live, who should I make the package out to? Therefore, they enter their entire name in the first name field when only glancing over the page and having a general assumption of what is being asked of them. You may not actually necessarily see this in your analytics for validation errors or error logs, as as many users will realize their mistake as they progress through the form and and correct it before it actually gets to be a problem or gets to be an error. But that doesn't mean that this is still a lot of needless friction for an otherwise very simple task. So the solution, uh, we've seen in our large scale testing that simply using a single full name field can alleviate many of these issues. So two examples here from Wayfair and Amazon where they simply ask the user for their full name. And it aligns better with the user perceptions of the row name as a single entity and it can alleviate necessary frictions. And if we have an average 12.71 form fields, combining the first and last name fields into a single form field is roughly a 7% reduction in the overall number of form fields that we have to play with. So this alone won't make or break your checkout, but it's part of that collective number of improvements to make. And finally, it's a much more flexible way of supporting middle names and titles and th- suffixes and things like that. Next is address line two or company fields. Uh, At Baymard we call these optional minority fields because while they are important to a small subset of users they won't affect or be needed by everyone all of the time. So it's important for it to be available but not so blatantly available as name which will affect everyone more often. And we see a surprising amount of issues during our testing when when users do come across an address line two field. And when they reach this address line two input we see that 30% of users come to a full stop. They simply stop and wonder and worry about what the differences are between the various form fields, uh, what they need to put in there, what they don't need to put in there, how important it is that they put anything in there, and so on. So, granted, you may be saying to yourself with the example that we see here, well, it just hasn't been explained. So surely if we just offer an explanation about these fields, then the users are going to be absolutely fine. Sadly, really still isn't the case. So we see it happening even when there is an explanation, when there's an apartment suite or other, or some sort of tooltips or text or contextual labeling, users still spend a surprising amount of time on these fields because they are open. So ultimately it just comes down to needless friction and concerns. There is however a design pattern that we see in testing that addresses this particular issue. And it looks a little bit something like this. And it's hiding the address line two field behind a link. Same can be done for company. So now there is less attention demand as it's no longer an open text form field, but it's still there for the subset of users who do actually require it. And our eye tracking studies have revealed that the users do note the presence of these links, so they're not being overlooked. And the same principle is apparent, like I said, with company name and other optional minority fields as well. And it makes it much easier for all users with that, without that information and users with it still notice the link. An important point to note on this is the links to placement and the styling. They should be where the form fields would have otherwise been, and they should be styled differently from conventional links, i.e., those that would take the users to a new page. So, some novice users expect links to act in a particular way, so changing this styling a little bit makes sure that the user can understand that there is a difference in intent and in where it's going to be or how it's going to happen. Uh, next is postal and zip code fields. And the issue that we see here is that city names are surprisingly prone to misspelling. Or transpose characters, so typing an A versus an S when it comes to like a standard quieter keyboard. Uh, We also see these issues with regional drop-downs or country drop-downs as well, because they're often needlessly complex simply because there's just so much choice and they grow really quite tall as well. And when I say it's needlessly complex, it's because it's some, it's not because it's something that we don't need, but because we can actually auto-detect a lot of this information based entirely from the user's postal or zip code. And that is part of the point of having postal and zip codes, using these numerical or alphanumerical values to track specific cities, regions, etc. So the only core information the user needs to actually enter after the postal or the zip code is a street or a house number or an apartment. And in testing, we therefore actually see there's far fewer typos that happen and a faster form completion. And we see that this reduces the amount of typing um, for address typing by approximately 40% when there is auto detection. So a user, in this example, they enter their US zip code and immediately, as soon as they've entered the last digit, immediately fills in the relative um, form fields there as well. Without it, the user would have had to type all of this information in from scratch. Also running the risk that they're gonna type it in incorrectly or it's not gonna be recognized. There's gonna be some sort of other issue that comes about. Currently, 53% of sites don't actually do this at the moment. We do want to point out there are naturally some implementation issues to be aware of. There should always be a fallback with auto detection. Without it, if a user lives in a particularly new build, for example, or it hasn't been updated within a particular system, then they literally can't enter their address. If they can't enter their address, they can't get their goods, they won't buy them, they have to leave. So it's important a manual fallback is in fact available for them. Next is that the auto detection should happen after the last digit is actually entered into the field or last character, um, not using the JavaScript on blur event or after you've actually left the field itself. And we've observed that it caused multiple issues um, various times during testing when that on blur event was actually in, in effect. So you had to leave the field first because users didn't know that something else was supposed to happen. So making sure that it is done kind of in line as it were, making sure that it's nice and clear that that is in fact there. And also happening it below. So as we saw in the little video that we had a second ago, while there wasn't actually that field below the zip code, it does appear afterwards. So even though the natural flow of filling out that area of the address isn't necessarily consistent, it does match up with what has been entered and the order of the things have been entered. Users don't tend to go back up in a field, but they will carry on going down. So having it coming after they've entered something makes the most amount of sense. So our next point is account creation, because for some sites this is part of the checkout flow. And regardless of whether account creation is optional or required, uh, we do see that users have a very high level of perceived friction associated with the act of creating an account at the beginning of the flow. Because when they're in a checkout flow with account creation at the beginning, they can often perceive that everything that comes after the account creation has been caused by the account creation. And this is perceived friction because the process of actually creating an account um, in in lieu of the checkout flow could literally just be one maybe two extra fields so the pa- the pattern that does perform vastly better than doing it at the beginning is delayed account creation and it's making the optional account creation feel exactly just like those one or two extra clicks or one or two extra fields that it actually is it looks a little bit like this so the user starts in the checkout selects guest proceeds through all uh, the rest of the fields as they normally would when they go through the checkout and on the receipt or order confirmation page, we just asked for a password. And that's literally it. Nice delayed account creation. They've been able to utilize all the information and it's no longer perceived friction as an issue. There are as always a couple of important details however, explaining that delayed account creation is in fact available and that it exists. Um, so for the group of users that do and are looking for creating an account, they know that they can do this at the end. Otherwise they have to leave the checkout and come back in, which is unnecessary and also just including the benefits of creating an account to pardon the pun, kind of sell it. So order tracking, safe shipping addresses, faster checkout, loyalty points, whatever happens to be relevant to your site. So as we can see, we started with 16 form fields and now we're down to just eight. So with a little bit of combining, um, hiding, singling out, utilising the information that we already have in terms of zip codes, uh, and then moving some processes to the end and making sure that things are optional where they should be optional, we've been really able to literally halve the amount of form fields that we have to show by default. So the next thing I wanted to move on to that is a, really it actually gets quite surprising, but it's really very useful to know is users' perceptions of security. So 70% of users abandoned a checkout, um, as per our quantitative study, as we see here, because they didn't trust the site with their checkout information, sorry, their credit card information in the checkout. And our testing has consistently shown that users continue to feel uneasy about sharing payment information with the e-commerce sites. And what's personally fascinating is that actual security doesn't influence if users trust the site or not users don't usually have the technical insight to recognize or know what makes a uh, makes it, an actual page secure what is important is the users perceptions of a site security and that it's largely determined by gut feeling literally do they trust the look and the feel of the site so for example the parts of the checkout page with security icons or badges or sharing, reassuring microcopy or general visual robustness are often perceived as being more secure Parts without these visual uh, visual clues inspire less confidence, despite the fact that the fields are all part of the same form to begin with. We see two major factors that can actually affect this, um, affect this user's perception of a site's security. One is brand, and one is how visually secure the site looks. So certain brands kind of have an inherent security feeling about them, due to their size or how well-known they are, things like Apple, Microsoft, uh, Walmart. So even with minimal visual security, they still have that inherent gut feeling towards them that they are in fact secure. By contrast, when testing sites that are newer or less well known or more niche, we've observed that users raise security concerns very easily if there aren't any visual clues. From a technical perspective, this is in the nicest way nonsense because all form fields on a HTTPS page are equally encrypted. However, most users, again, just don't have this technical insight and there's nothing wrong with that. So what we can do is leverage this misconception. And if users have less confidence in site security, if the credit card fields don't look or feel more secure, then one way to increase the perceived security of sensitive fields is to visually encapsulate them. Uh, So we can use this by uh, using borders, background colours, shading and other visual styling that will make one part of the form seem more robust than the rest. And it's important that the visual encapsulation must be distinct and unique for the credit card field. So make sure it's not being used anywhere else from the checkout, otherwise it kind of loses that power. Another visual clue observed to be effective is using badges. So SSL badges and um, other similar visual clues to indicate the site is trustworthy. Norton, Trustee, Google, Trusted Source and so on. There is a difference between an SSL seal, which are issued by SSL certificate vendors like like Norton and Trustwave and GeoTrust. And trust seals like Google trusted store on top of that there are also the homemade or essentially made-up photoshopped padlocks <laughs> fake seals uh, or checkout security badges that aren't related to a third party whatsoever and if we look at this particular graph here we can see it is outperforming some of these big well-known and legal businesses just because someone has added a, a picture of Um, of a security block or of a badge or something completely not affected or not related to any real site. So this generic seal was more trusted than these big businesses and it really does go to show that users go by their gut feeling. Our next area is about third-party payments. This will naturally vary in regards to what it is that you're actually offering per site, per region and so on, but offering at least something is really the core aspect here. So, it's fairly straightforward in the fact that you run the risk of losing several percentages of sales if you don't offer any third party payment methods. So, as you see, 6% of users abandoned sites because there weren't enough payment methods available for them. So, the third party payment methods are becoming essentially a web convention, with 85% of the 60 top grossing US and European sites offering at least one or, or more uh, third party payment methods. And this went up from 78% into 2016 and 83% in 2019. So it's slowly becoming even more popular and more prevalent across sites. So including card, this should be a roughly three methods of payment available to any user at any time. Not all users want third party payment methods. Frankly, many users don't care and they won't pay any attention to them. But for the subset of users that do prefer them and do benefit from them, not offering them still results in sales. And as we've all seen when it comes to e-commerce, uh, a single person does not equal a single number. Those people who would be possibly looking for third-party payments could be spending more, et cetera. You know, speculative, but still. So not offering it is still a lost sale, it's still a lost customer. And these subset of group of users prefer it mainly for convenience, uh, but also security. So our last set of insights I wanted to share today is about optimizing for mobile keyboards. So there are four touch keyboard optimizations that we've encountered during our large-scale um, mobile and checkout usability sessions. We find that 85% get at least one of these wrong and 60% get at least two wrong. So let's take a look exactly what these are. So our first is disabling autocorrect when the dictionary is weak. So many touch keyboards naturally have an autocorrect feature uh, built in. Uh, could be very helpful when we're writing a social media status or even an email. Not so useful when we're playing around with uh, field, form fields within a checkout. So what we see is happening that the c- correct inputs are being in- replaced pardon, with incorrect ones. So our user here is having their address input corrected to milligrams, which in this case is completely wrong. For the users that notice it, a little bit annoying because then they have to go back and go fix it. For the users that don't notice it, it runs the risk that they won't ever receive their package because the address literally doesn't exist for them. So it's important to disable autocorrect for name, address, and city. And here's the code that you can find in order to do that within your own checkout. Number two uh, is using all touch optimized keyboard layouts. So our usability test session showed vastly better performances on sites that utilize these purpose-built touch keyboards, especially for numeric inputs. Yet an astonishing 54% of mobile sites fail to utilize all the keyboards that are available to them to help the user with their various inputs. It decreases typos on sites with numeric keyboards and it naturally led to fewer form validation errors which in turn resulted in a better and more seamless shopping experience for those test objects on those sites in general there are three html attributes that will invoke purpose-built keyboard layouts uh, namely type input mode and pattern attributes and these attributes and values do depend on the field itself for instance email and phone have special keyboards, but credit card doesn't, but it doesn't mean you can't evoke the relevant numeric keyboard just to help users along. Number three is disabling auto-capitalization on email. And 26% of mobile sites don't do this. In mobile testing, users frequently went back and actively deleted the first auto-capitalized word in any email address that they've typed in many thinking that email addresses were case sensitive, or if it wasn't matching up entirely to how they originally wrote it, they wouldn't receive the email or there'd be some sort of error. So to avoid this, just simply disable it. And most modern browsers do do this automatically when you specify that it's an email field, but we still recommend doing it just in case, especially for legacy purposes. And finally, is invoking touch keyboards consistently? might sound odd but 25% of mobile sites don't do this. So a user will tap into a credit card field, it comes up with numeric keyboard exactly as they're expecting, exactly what's going to help them, but then they'll tap into the security field or even the expiration date for a credit card and they get an alphanumeric or just an alpha keyboard. Either way it's a little jarring and certainly not helpful. So making sure that it's completely consistent within the checkout is also very, very important. And again, it's an example of needless friction for the user that could have otherwise been avoided. We do have this little cheat sheet available at baymod.com and you're able to find all of the appropriate types when it comes to these uh, keyboard inputs. Uh, so input mode, pattern, etc., and attributes. So sadly, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so we're just gonna recap our six findings that we've had from today. So number one. Focus less on number of steps and more about what you have to do. So that's the, the form fields themselves. Number two, the average checkout flow is 12.71 form fields long and it could be just as short as six to eight. Number three, reduce visible fields by combining, hiding, auto-detecting and moving, especially optional films, around a wee bit there. Number four, add visual robustness to card fields and use trust marks from consumer-facing brands. Number five, offer at least one third party payment option, especially for international users. Uh, And number six, ensure that all mobile keyboard attributes are present, and that's disabling autocorrect for name, address and city. We also apply this for search as well, search autocomplete, Uh, invoking bespoke keyboards for all numeric inputs, phone and email, disabling autocapitalization on email, and also invoking touch keyboards consistently. So the average large scale US e-commerce site as mentioned has 32 checkout usability issues to address. So it's 32 potential areas for improvement and these six will take you part of the way there. But lucky for you Baymard has these the rest of the 134 all available for further access and further information, to see what would be most relevant to your own sites and how you yourself can make those more robust checkout um, availabilities for both desktop and mobile because nuances are always present when it comes to platform And all of these aren't equal when it comes to weight or importance or frequency or severity, but together they will help alleviate those feelings of anxiousness, frustration, um, or users performing those futile actions that could again otherwise have been avoided. And our research suggests that the average e-commerce site can improve its conversion rate by thirty-five percent solely through design improvements to the checkout process. It's definitely something to look. Pardon. It's definitely something worth looking into a little bit further. So thank you. I've been Rebecca and that's uh, been six top findings from checkout optimization for you today. Uh, Not quite sure if we have any questions at all. Of
1: course. (laughs) Thank you very much for let's say 30 minutes and uh, improvement for 50% uh, actually in uh, e-commerce, especially for the customers. Uh, You mentioned uh, on the last point, the six point uh, mobile and keyboards, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes it seems that uh, in e-commerce uh, desktop uh, experience and mobile experience are not consistent. So, uh, and more and more uh, customers use mobiles, uh, so they are buying through a mobile uh, platform, but uh, should that mean that uh, the companies should focus first on a mobile experience and then to desktop to improve all these uh, issues?
0: The main thing that we would say is actually just looking at your individual traffic. So if you know that many users are in fact shopping on um, mobile platforms over desktop, then definitely paying attention to what's happening with mobile is going to affect more of your revenue. Many of the issues that we look at when it comes, at least when it comes to mobile site versus desktop site versus app, because obviously app development is a little bit different, but if we're looking at simply mobile site and desktop site, many of these issues are platform agnostic. So an adjustment to one should carry over onto the other platform. Um, Other than that, it's really, it's also paying attention to how the user is shopping. Are they shopping as in doing product searching on mobile, but then actually physically purchasing on desktop? is making sure that the experience is cohesive and um, consistent as possible to make sure it's not jarring or full of friction is also something to pay attention to. So there is paying attention obviously to your own company and your own industry and your own establishment and working out what the traffic is. From there you'll be able to determine where the best place to start is. Mm.
1: Uh, then I have a, a little bit, uh, let's say a tricky question, uh, how is also connected uh, my next step or a customer next step uh, with the correlation of the service that is needed after I fill the form, because if I fill for the shipment and then the next step there is announcement how much this will cost me. If because it's a difference if i buy from united states or from uk so uh how is this then correlated you know like free shipping etc or the services or let's say now in corona uh, time that uh it's not touchable um uh hand over so how is this connected
0: So we do actually have various guidelines or recommendation when it comes to communicating as early as possible in any flow, exactly how much the user is going to pay. And that includes going all the way back to the product detail page. So making it very clear from there, if there's free shipping, what qualifies as free shipping, making sure that the messages there aren't pointless or confusing, making sure it's clear what those shipping options are, if there are any limitations into it. So for example, if you're a mass merchant and you're selling, deodorant versus a fridge if there's differences in shipping there making sure that's apparent doing the same thing in the cart estimates are always going to be your friend even if it's at the basis level of shipping from as low as geotargeting to making sure that it is again relevant to the area in which you're in if you are shopping internationally or at least just making it nice and clear with some sort of statement saying there might be changes it should come to etc it's all going to be bits that help you and then when you actually get to the shipping area, being really upfront, really transparent and simply being honest. Many users know that you know the Corona and COVID-19 situation is difficult for everyone to be in. So yeah. what support and offerings that can be top of that, making sure that your return policy is super clear and super accessible as well. It will help alleviate these tensions and concerns that users have as they do process through the checkout.
1: OK, and a little bit uh devil question especially from <laughs> let's say in voice of the customer understanding customer uh how many of these user experience designers actually test such uh, let's say journey on their own or even observe their own customers what they are doing because this is the hardest thing you know you assume you know everything about customers but then the reality is something different
0: that's always the fascinating thing. Um, so Baymard concentrate on heuristics. So we look at uh, various sites of the various industries, so we do see how users respond to things from home and hardware and mass merchant and apparel and health and beauty, electronics, technical, B2B, and that helps give that heuristic knowledge of more often than not users respond to things in a particular way. So when it comes to your own sites and look at the guidelines, if you know and do happen to have done your own testing and have that physical, well, our users don't do this or our users respond positively to, we won't argue with you in any way. But as you said, the likelihood and obviously the expense for having an in-house team to pay attention to and know what those users are doing consistently, we can't guarantee that every company is able to do this. So that's one of the benefits of Baymard we've kind of done it for you and then the knowledge that you take from that is with a little bit of pinch and salt and then you apply it to the knowledge that you also have within your industry we'll never pretend to be experts within your individual sector we can just give you the heuristic more often than not the example and then how that applies and how that can be how can fit essentially is is really down to yourself
1: okay Thank you, Rebecca Hugo, for uh, uh, being with us on Grow eCommerce show. It was really a huge honor to have you again, uh, especially helping uh, us and all the rest of the customers to improve themselves at least for 50% with such small steps that be, uh, make a big improvement. Uh, so uh, we hope that uh, you will join us also in the future with next suggestions or improvements and uh, the audience thank you for being us and wish you a nice day.